Okay. Hi, everyone. So, since we're still working on our next um, listener request episode, which is going to be on the great Dostoevsky, by the way, I thought I'd uh, fill the time by saying a few words about, well, ancient Greek happiness. You know, it's interesting. We today have quite a different conception of happiness than the ancient thinkers did. So, I thought it'd be interesting to compare the two a little bit. I don't know, maybe there's something we could learn from the ancient Greeks here. Maybe there's some wisdom in what they have to say about, well, happiness. Okay, so here we go. Okay, so I think it's pretty safe to say that for us moderns, happiness suggests a pleasant feeling or a psychological state of one sort or another. I mean, we pretty much take it to be synonymous with something like feeling good or having fun, right? Consequently, for us, it's possible to speak of being happy for one moment or at one point in time, but not in another. For example, we might say something like, I was happy the night my team finally qualified for the playoffs. But I wasn't happy when they went on to lose in the first round. And a connected point is this. Because we take happiness to be equivalent to a feeling, we often think it's something that we just can't be mistaken about. In other words, if we feel happy, then we are happy. That's that. So, I don't know, I guess one way of expressing this is to say that, for us, happiness is subjective. Now, as odd as it may sound to us, for most ancient Greek philosophers, happiness is not primarily a feeling. Okay, so let's take someone like Aristotle first. So, according to him, happiness isn't pleasure, but instead it has something to do with leading a flourishing and fulfilled or worthwhile life. It has something to do with, well, achieving our potential. In this sense, happiness refers to the quality of a whole life and not to particular moments in time when we, you know, feel good. Actually, this is why Aristotle says that children can't be happy. And that's because if happiness is concerned with uh, the complete life, then obviously it's not something we can attribute to a very young person even though the child may be experiencing many pleasurable moments. And more specifically, it would be premature to call a child happy when we don't really know how their life as a whole is going to turn out. After all, they may, down the road, meet with great misfortune. Like, I don't know, uh, maybe a terrible, life-threatening disease. Actually, it's interesting. When Aristotle talks about this stuff he refers from time to time to the story of Solon and Croesus in Herodotus. And in the main, he shares Solon's view there. So, well, what's Solon's view? Well, basically what Solon tells the arrogant King Croesus is that he just can't tell whether or not to call Croesus happy until he has seen whether or not Croesus has brought his life to an end well. So, what does he mean by this? Well, what he seems to be doing is reminding Croesus of the uncertainty of life's events and of the the fragility of existence in general. That is, since bad luck or ill fortune 
is always a possibility. It would be premature and even presumptuous to call oneself happy before one's entire life has been lived out. In particular, he's letting it be known to Croesus that his own extremely favorable circumstances could change drastically before or at the moment of his death. Anyway, we, we might see, therefore, that for Solon and for Aristotle after him, happiness is more like the, the characterization of an entire life or a condition of a person's life as a whole than it is the product of some momentary and subjective feeling or experience. I mean, this is why they both think that nobody, including Croesus, is entitled to bear the name happy before the day of their death. In other words, both of them argue that a life must be completed, or almost completed, before we can truly judge whether or not it has been a happy one for the person living it. This is what Aristotle means when he says, in what has become a famous line now, For one swallow does not make a spring, nor similarly does one day make us blessed and happy. Okay, so I said earlier that we moderns tend to think of happiness not just as a feeling, but also as subjective. Well, this too is something most ancient philosophers would just not agree with. No, in contrast to our modern conception, they hold to what we might call an objective account of happiness. So again, I don't know, let's take Aristotle first. So happiness, for him, consists in satisfying certain conditions or goals which are not determined by our feelings or desires. Or, to put it another way, to be happy, we must flourish and fulfill our potential. And the important thing is, for Aristotle, there's a fact of the matter about what this is. And so, if we fail to achieve this, we just can't be said to be happy. Now, this is what I mean when I say that these philosophers hold to an objective account of happiness. Okay, but Aristotle's not the only one who argues for this. Um, Plato, too, holds to a kind of objectivity. Okay, so for Plato, happiness is basically a certain state or condition of the soul. More specifically, it's a harmonious soul, one where each part, because he thought it had, well, three parts, where each part was doing what it was supposed to do. You see, it's, it's really interesting. What Plato does is he sort of gives an analogy between this harmonious soul and health, and the unharmonious soul and disease. He says that harmony is the natural order of, or relationship between, the parts of the soul. As health is the natural order of, or relationship between, the parts of the body. Now, part of Plato's reason for drawing this analogy is to get us to see, in the most palpable way, what the nature of disharmony in the soul looks like. That's to say, if harmony in the soul is optimal health, then disharmony in the soul is the worst disease, right? And disharmony, like disease, 
is a corruption of the body's nature. It's a, it's a disruption of the natural order. Now, Plato's point here is that this simply isn't a good condition of the soul, and so not a very desirable state to be in. Certainly, most of us who have experienced intense inner conflict and confusion will agree that our lives would be much more desirable without it. So much so, perhaps, that we might think that life isn't even worth living in such a condition. On the other hand, though, if the, if the various parts in us are functioning harmoniously, if our soul is healthy, then we will find ourselves in the most desirable state. In a word, we'll be happy. It isn't that difficult to see why this is so. When we are physically unhealthy or ill, our mind is foggy, our body is weak and hindered, and we feel bothered and uncomfortable. Consequently, our actions are going to be limited, and we find that we can't really do what we'd like to do. On the contrary, though, when we have a healthy body, our mood is marked by a kind of quiescence. We have our full range of capacities and can do what we want to do. With health, then, comes freedom in our actions and real control and direction over our lives. Plato argues that much the same thing can be said of the harmonious or healthy soul. When the three parts of our soul are properly balanced, each performing its proper function, our actions will flow from sound judgment. We won't be plagued and buffeted around by our overpowering desires and emotions. Nor, consequently, will we suffer the, the usual anxieties and fears wrought up by them. No, in this condition we'll have full control over ourselves and our actions, and so we'll be doing what we genuinely want to be doing. So, with a harmonious soul then, comes freedom, clarity of thought, self-control, a deep sense of satisfaction, and a feeling of calm or equanimity. In other words, harmony in the soul just is, well, happiness. So, to get back to my point about happiness being objective for Plato, the idea is basically this. There is a fact of the matter about happiness for him. Happiness just is being in this harmonious state. So, if you're not in it, you're not happy, despite what you might feel about things. Now, this is why in one of Plato's dialogues, Socrates says that he can't tell if the great king Archelaus is happy until he speaks with him and has the chance to examine his soul. In other words, it doesn't matter if the great king thinks he's happy or that everyone else thinks he is. Rather, the only thing that matters is a particular fact about the condition of his soul. Archelaus, then, could be mistaken about his happiness. Happiness just isn't subjective. Okay, so what else do we today think happiness involves? Well, I got a good one. How about money and material goods? I mean, that's pretty clear, right? I mean, we just don't usually associate happiness with austerity. Well, what about the ancient philosophers on this point? What do they have to say? 
So let's just take one. Let's look at Socrates' view on this. So in Plato's dialogue, The Euthydemus, Socrates is having a discussion with a young man, Clinius, about the nature of happiness. Now, to cut to the point, basically Clinius tells Socrates that money and material goods are crucial for happiness. Now, Socrates' rejoinder is pretty interesting. What he basically says is that being wealthy or having a lot of money will not benefit us and help us to achieve happiness unless we also use it in the right way. As Socrates stresses, using money in the wrong way can actually do us great harm. I mean, for instance, we can squander it or use it to ruin our health. In this sense, too much money is something akin to, I don't know, like like some dangerous tool lying around in our shed. That's to say, if we use it in the wrong way, it can cause us serious harm, right? Okay, but what's Socrates' point? Well, it's pretty obvious. Everything boils down to having wisdom. That's to say, only when we have the wisdom to use our wealth correctly are we going to be properly benefited by it and so achieve happiness. And there's actually another very important implication here. And that's this. According to Socrates, if we're going to possess money without being directed by the wisdom of how to use it, if we're ignorant, it will actually be better for us, of all things, to limit our financially related undertakings. And this is because the less we do with our money without wisdom, the less blunders we will make, and so the less miserable we will be. I mean, the same reasoning applies to the example of the tool in our shed, right? I mean, the less we have to do with that sharp and hazardous tool, if we're ignorant of its use, the better things will be for us. So, for Socrates then, wealth is better than its opposite, poverty, when combined or guided by wisdom, but it's actually worse than its opposite when detached from it. So, if we are going to proceed without wisdom, we'll actually be happier, Socrates thinks, if we are poor rather than rich. Didn't see that one coming, right? Okay, but I think another basic point he's making is that once you start thinking reflectively about things, that's to say, once you gain some wisdom, you begin to understand what really has value in life. I mean, that's part of what wisdom is for Socrates. It's to know what's truly valuable and worth going after in life and what isn't. Okay, but here's the neat thing. It turns out that the things of real value just are not the sorts of things that require a lot of money to get. Wisdom, then, reveals to us just how little money we need in order to be genuinely happy. Okay, well, the last major difference I wanted to mention between our modern conception of happiness and the ancient one has to do with the place or role of morality. I mean, we tend to think that morality really has nothing to do with happiness, right? That it's possible to be happy without being a good person or having a good character. Well, again, this is not something the ancient Greek thinkers thought was possible. No, for them, 
being good or virtuous was absolutely necessary for happiness. In other words, it just wasn't possible to be happy if you lacked moral virtue. Okay, but why exactly? How did they argue for this? Well, let me just mention a couple of things. So, Solon is made to suggest something instructive in the Herodotus story that I mentioned earlier. Basically, he he seems to be suggesting that it's partly because Croesus doesn't have a good character that he shouldn't be credited with happiness. Now, again, why? Well, it's because virtue, or having a good character, is not only something that is truly our own, in that it is up to us to form and hard to take away from us, but it's the most successful in coping with the ups and downs of life. And it is in part by giving us this, the the most security and stability, that it provides the surest promise of happiness. Now, it turns out, of course, that Solon was right about this and about Croesus, because at the end of the day, Croesus proved to have little strength within himself to call upon when things turned against him. Rich in external goods, he was, well, poor or weak in soul. And if you're poor in soul, if you have a weak character, happiness will be a very difficult thing to achieve and sustain. Okay, the the last example I wanted to mention comes again from Plato. So, in his great dialogue, The Republic, Plato makes Socrates describe what being a bad person, in Plato's words, what having an unruly soul, does for our psychology and well-being. The most unjust soul, Plato says, is a tyrannical one. It's a soul that resembles a tyrannized state. The person in this condition is, in Plato's words, the most wretched. Now, why exactly is this? Well, because, first of all, a tyrannical soul isn't free. It's a soul dominated by the maddest and most depraved desires, where reason and reflection have become enslaved. Just like a city that is under a a tyranny does least what it wants, so a soul that is under a tyranny will least do what it really wants. Again, the idea here is that when our soul is in balance and harmonious, we are free and autonomous, making decisions for ourselves and in the best interests of our life as a whole. On the other hand, though, when our desires have taken control over the whole of our soul, we are enslaved, being compelled to act in ways we do not choose, leaving us feeling regretful, lost, anxious, and fearful. Actually, you know what? Saddam Hussein, the the former dictator of Iraq, is pretty illustrative here. Actually, many people are, but let's just stick to him. So, despite outward appearances, Plato would say that Hussein's life, even early on in his dictatorship, wasn't entirely in his own control. Being ruled by the the desiring part of his soul, enslaved to his cravings for power, he was making decisions that were not fully his own and in his own best interests, decisions he would come to regret. 
nor would Plato see Hussein's soul as one marked by calm and the absence of fear. I mean, what is perhaps not widely known about Saddam Hussein at the height of his rule is that despite the fact that he owned several palaces filled with all the comforts that money could buy, you know, pools and cars and so on, he couldn't use them. As a matter of fact, the ruler of Iraq rarely slept in the same bed twice. No, he spent most of his time running to and from secret bunkers for fear of being killed by his many dissenters. So Hussein was not really free at all, since he had become the victim of his unruly, expansive desires for domination. Nor was he calm and joyful, since his life was beset by continuous anxiety and worry concerning his own survival. So Hussein didn't know it, but immorality was never in his best interests. So Plato's point here is that a very unjust or immoral person, despite external appearances that may suggest otherwise, has a unhealthy or unharmonious soul, and so is actually the furthest from being happy as one can be. Again, his basic point is this. While it's never ultimately in our interests to be immoral or unjust, a morally good life is actually always in our interests because it manifests and nurtures the health and harmony of our souls and gives us that extended peace of mind characteristic of deep, genuine happiness. <laughs>